All right, uh, we're going to be in Genesis 19. If you remember, most of this spring has been the Lord, the Lord series, which is just the, the attributes of God. So we're going to jump into Genesis 19, starting in verse 1. Before we get there, though, I want to tell you a quick story. Uh, I was reading on the news app two days ago, and I read the story of Danielle Jurinsky, which I don't expect any of you to know. She lives in Colorado. Unless you read the local news from Colorado, why would you know this? Danielle Jurinsky is uh, a lady who serves on city council in a town in Colorado. And last year, about this time last year, she went on the radio and was being interviewed by someone who does like a talk show on like AM radio. And she made really critical comments about the, the police chief of their city. What she did not know is that the girlfriend of this police chief heard those comments. And as retaliation, she went on the anonymous hotline like tip thing and made an accusation that this councilwoman was abusing her two-year-old son, and they opened an investigation into her. As this investigation started happening, uh, the investigators quickly realized this was a complete fabrication, and they were like, like we got to get to the bottom of this, and they were able to trace it back to a, a lady named Robin Nesetta. And the thing about Robin Nesetta is she did not want to take responsibility for her actions. She had made false allegations and like theoretically could have torn this family apart. Like this woman would have lost her child. This would have, would have been like a, a sexual offense on the sexual offender list. So like this was a really, really big deal. And Robin Isetta was facing charges, so she did what anyone would do when they're facing charges. She faked brain cancer. And uh, this is a real story. She faked brain cancer and was able to find someone to uh, sign like MRIs that she said were her brain, and then this was during COVID, so she had to do a, a Zoom call, and on that Zoom call, uh, she pretended to be nonverbal because of the brain tumors were so big in her, in her head. Uh, this woman was completely faking it, and the further that they investigated, the more they realized it was like, this isn't true, but they had already decided they weren't going to go to trial. It seemed like Robin was able to get away with it. We hear stories like that, and I, I, you should be angry, I think. I, someone making an allegation, a false allegation, purely out of spite, is already pretty bad. An allegation that could tear someone's family apart is even worse. Refusing to take responsibility, even worse than that. And then lying about an a, like a incredibly damaging medical condition to try to get out of jail time. Like, what a wicked person. I think the question that comes up in our minds is like, what if she gets away with it? And then if we reflect on it, I think we realize, actually, no, people shouldn't get away with this. And a lot of times they do. A lot of times people do wicked things and they get away with it. So what should we do? How should we think about this? This reality in our world that people say and do terrible things and face no consequences. Well, the Bible has something to say about that. Our passage today is a very clear example that God will not overlook wickedness forever. The, the lesson for tonight that I hope you learn is God will not overlook wickedness forever. God is a God of justice, and he will hold people accountable for the things that they do. 
We're going to read through Genesis 19, verses 1 to 29. We're going to read it in a few segments, and then I have just two points. The first point, God is a just judge. So Genesis 19, verses 1 to 3. The two angels came to Sodom in the evening, and Lot was sitting at the gate of Sodom. When Lot saw them, he rose to meet them and bowed himself with his face to the earth and said, My lords, turn aside to your servant's house and spend the night and wash your feet that you may rise up early and go on your way. And they said, No, we will spend the night in the town square. But he pressed them strongly. So they turned aside to him and entered his house. He made them a feast and baked unleavened bread, and they ate. This story begins like most ancient Near Eastern stories. You have people traveling. Uh, this is an, a desert, an arid climate. So if you travel, it, food doesn't keep very well. You are dependent on the hospitality of people at every town that you arrive at. And we have the classic story, a traveler stepping into town. If you ever watched a Western movie, this is the beginning of every Western movie, right? A new person rides into town and everyone is at the saloon and they're like, oh my goodness, there's a new person. That's what's happening here. Lot, we're told, is at the city gate. And this has a significance that isn't the same in our world. People who sat at the gate tended to be the important people of the city. They were the wealthy. They were the people that had some form of civic involvement. So Lot, we know, if you know the story, Lot is, is not a local. Lot is not from this town. He is the nephew of Abraham, and he moved to this town to get away from Abraham because they couldn't live too close to each other because there wasn't enough food for their animals or water for their animals. Lot is a foreigner in this city, but he's sitting at the gate. So the story presents as an influential, wealthy person meets a stranger. An influential, wealthy person has the ability to provide for that stranger. And at first glance, it looks like that's exactly what happened. Lot invites him to his house. They go there. They eat a meal. Uh, Lot's hospitality, though, is kind of sus. Lot makes a feast, but all we're told he ate was unleavened bread. Uh, So this would be like me saying, I would like to take you all to a fancy dinner. I love NY so much. Y'all are my people. We're all going to White Spot. And you're like, "Like, White Spot's pretty good. Yeah, you should. White Spot's good. I don't know why you guys are such haters. Uh, White Spot's good, uh, but it's not fancy dinner. It's a family restaurant. Like, I go there because I have little kids, and they sell pirate packs, right? Like, that's why families go there. So hospitality is like meeting people's needs. Lot is presented as a very generous person, right? He, he fed them. He provided for them. But if you had read chapter 18, right? We're starting in chapter 19. If you read chapter 18, you would have read a story about Abraham, Lot's uncle. And Abraham did something very similar. Abraham is sitting outside his tent. He's just standing under a tree and in the shade, very hot day. And all of a sudden, he looks over. He's like, oh, my goodness, there's travelers, three people walking by. And he does the same thing Lot did. My lords, come with me. Come into my tent. I will feed you. The strangers agree. They enter his tent. And Abraham goes above and beyond. Abraham has his wife prepare fine flour cakes, so like baked bread, fresh baked bread with like really good stuff. They kill a calf and prepare the meat. He serves them curds and milk, so like what they would have used as like yogurt. So they have a, a gourmet meal. Abraham was a very wealthy man. He had the ability to provide this, so he did. This would have been, in modern equivalents, it would have been like Wagyu beef and all the trimmings, right? Like an incredibly expensive meal. Like this isn't something you just keep around. You do this for really, really important people or on really, really big occasions. So Abraham 
super hospitable guy. Lot in Genesis 19 is presented as a hospitable guy. But if we're reading the story in order, if we're reading chapter 1 all the way to 19, we start to wonder, like, Lot, like Lot stepped up. He's a decent guy. But is he as generous as he presents himself? Is he as great as he looks? And by in three verses into this story, we should already be wondering, is Lot as good as he looks? The scene, the scene shifts. We go from these guests to the problem. Genesis 19, verses 4 to 11. Before they lay down, so right, this is late in the evening now, the men of the city, the men of Sodom, both young and old, all the people to the last man surrounded the house. And they called to Lot, where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us that we may know them. And Lot went out to the men at the entrance and shut the door after him and said, I beg you, my brothers, do not act so wickedly. Behold, I have two daughters who have not known any man. Let me bring them out to you and do to them as you please. Only do nothing to these men, for they have come under the shelter of my roof. But they said, stand back. And they, and they said, this fellow came to sojourn, and he has become the judge. Now we will deal worse with you than with them. Then they pressed hard against the man Lot and drew near to break the door down. But the men reached out their hands and brought Lot into the house with them and shut the door. And they, these men or these angels, struck, the bl struck with blindness the men who were at the entrance of the house, both small and great. So they wore themselves out groping for the door. The scene goes from strangers needing hospitality to, oh my goodness, this is a horror movie in one verse. This story takes a turn in a, in a much darker tone. Uh, we're introduced to a crowd of people, these men of Sodom, and the, the, the narrator presents this crowd as, as an all-encompassing group. He's communicating to you. Moses likely wrote Genesis. Moses is saying to us, uh, everybody was there. The, the young men and the old men. All, the line from verse 4 is all the people to the last man. Everybody pulled up. Everybody pulled up because they were all willing to participate in what was going to go down. What, what Moses is trying to communicate, what God is trying to communicate in this passage is that the, the city was, was bad to the bone. Like they were, they were all bad. There wasn't just a few bad apples. There wasn't just one or two bad guys that made things bad for everyone else. Everybody's involved. Everybody's complicit. This city is wicked. And before we get too far along, you kind of have to ask the question, okay, like obviously they have bad intentions, but like how bad? What is the thing that they're trying to do? So you have to understand something about the Hebrew language. Hebrew language uh, doesn't use graphic terms. They use euphemisms. So a euphemism is like using one image that communicates something that most people in the culture understand what it means. Right? So uh, we would say have sex or get lucky or more, I guess, colloquially, catch a body. Uh, they... These guys, I, they're not my words, it's all y'all. All y'all talk like this. Uh, this crowd is after a particular thing. The story, right, like it's funny to us, but if you're inside that house, it's not that funny. If your house gets surrounded and everyone is there and you know what they're after, that's a terrifying situation. This story is incredibly dark, one of the harshest in the Bible. These men are there to assault the guests. The, the story makes it clear. Lot understands their intentions. 
His behavior communicates that he knows how great the danger is. He steps outside the house, right? A guy who's at the gate, a guy who has some say in his community, and he says, do not do this wickedness. Lot understands that there's great danger, but Lot's hands are not clean. Uh, he is no better than the people around him. Uh, I think right here I want to take a quick pause, a little detour, into describing what exactly is, is going on here. Obviously, they, they're trying to assault someone, so that's bad. But when we look at, like, what made Sodom wicked? Like, people today will def- answer that question very differently than people 50 years ago, than Christians for the last 4,000 years. So we have to answer that question. Like, what was the sin of Sodom, if you will? So uh, there, there's a bunch of people today that believe the sin of Sodom was inhospitality. They were just rude. They were, they're mean people. They recognized the need, and they were like, we're not going to help you out. We hope you starve and die. And there's a verse in the Bible that actually defends this idea. Ezekiel 16, 49 says this. Behold, this was the guilt of your sister Sodom. Okay, we know they're wicked. This is, what telling, this is why she, she's guilty. This is why she's wicked. She and her daughters had pride, excess of food, prosperous ease, but, so they had it really good, but they did not aid the poor and needy. So people in today's world will read this passage and they'll say, the sin of Sodom was they didn't care about the poor. They had no social programs. They they didn't help out people who were in need. We view sexual relationships very different in our world than they did. We think all that really matters is consent. All that really matters is love. So people in today's world, they will point to a passage like this and say, the only error in this passage is that these people were were inhospitable. They They were mean. They were rude. They were not kind to the needy. But if, if we read the Bible, we should always read at least a chapter, right? If you read a verse, you run the danger of misunderstanding it. When we look at this passage, if you go one verse further, this is what it says. So I'll read the 49 and verse 50. This was the guilt of your sister Sodom. She and her daughters had pride, excess of food, and prosperous ease, but did not aid the poor and needy. Verse 50. They were haughty and did an abomination before me, so I removed them when I saw it. So Sodom is guilty of, of more than one thing, of, of multiple things. They're a wicked city because they do all kinds of bad things. Ancient readers saw both inhospitality and homosexuality as sins. The Old Testament is presenting an image that doesn't fit in our world, but we have to understand the story in its context, understand how it's read. This story is spoken about other parts in the Bible. In the New Testament, Jude chapter, or Jude has one chapter, so Jude 1, verse 7 says this, Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, so their entire valley, likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire. They serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. This passage for us, like the reason I'm taking this little pause is I, I have heard it read, I've heard it used in lots of conversations. And my hope for you at NYA is that when you come across the Bible, you should, A, never be embarrassed about anything in it, and B, you should be ready to interact with people who want to talk about it. So I, I, because we're in this passage, I want to quickly clarify, Genesis 19 makes it really clear that the people of the city were wicked, and it gives you color to that wickedness. It's not just their inhospitality. It's also their sexual morality. They were bad to the bone. They lived in total rebellion to God and his ways. If we wanted to be accurate, we would say they did what they wanted. They were a city that just did what they wanted. They did everything their way. And 
we're told a couple different examples, both in Ezekiel 16 and in Jude 1. The point, though, of Genesis 19, as we work through the passage, as we come back over and over again to this idea of sexual brokenness, it's not just these men wanting to assault the guests. It's even Lot who offers up his daughters as collateral. Can you imagine that, that image, right? Someone's knocking at the door of your house, and your dad answers the door, and your dad says, oh, you, you know, Pastor Freddie's visiting. I, I don't want to send him out. So you can have my kids instead. Like, who, what, what father would do that? It's horrible. This story, it's not just about the brokenness of Sodom. It's about the brokenness of humanity. Humanity are the kind of people that are willing to sacrifice someone else. They're the kind of people that have no sexual boundaries. If you read the rest of the Old Testament, if you read God's law, both of the brokennesses are condemned. It's not like God hates one particular sin more. God condemns all kinds of sins. So if you read through the Old Testament, Leviticus 18, verse 22, you shall not lie with a man as with a woman. It is an abomination. And you're like, so very clear. The next passage is just as clear. Leviticus 19, verse 29, do not profane your daughter by making her a prostitute, lest the land fall into prostitution and the land become full of depravity. Lot failed. The Sodomite people failed. The point of this passage is you have a tremendously sexually broken city. They're broken in all kinds of ways. They're inhospitable. They're arrogant. They have no morals. And Lot is in a predicament. He went out to the crowd, and now they're going to get him too. This little scene ends with the angels pulling him back in. Uh, but what's interesting is the text still calls them men. Every time Lot interacts with them, they're, they're called men. Lot has no idea what's happening. He is ignorant to the reality of the danger both he and this city is in. He's also, gonna, we're going to see very soon, he's ignorant to the salvation that's available to him. He's just going with the flow. So we go from this, the siege, this terrible scene, and we change gears. We shift to the next scene. They're back inside the house. The people in the city, the, the image is, is telling. They have worn themselves out trying to go for the door. Can you imagine being so exhausted that you cannot even get up? Like the, the closest experience I've ever had is what, like when I was in high school, I remember daily doubles. I played tackle football. And in the States, they run you like dogs in the morning and in the, in the afternoon. So you practice like 9.30 to 11.30. They let you go home for lunch, and then you practice again 2 to 4. So it's hot, and then it's even hotter. And sometimes at the end of the night, you are still expected to lift. Like it is a brutal two weeks where the entire purpose of it is to condition you. At the end of that practice, everyone is laying on the ground. That's the image here. You have people that so exerted themselves that they can't even get up. They weren't playing a sport. They were trying to break through a door. The image is really, really dark. Again, this, this town is incredibly broken. And then we shift to a warning. Genesis 19, verses 12 to 15. The men said to Lot, have you anyone else here, sons-in-law, or sons-in-law, sons, daughters, or anyone you have in this city, bring them out of the place. We are about to destroy this place because the outcry against his people has become great before the Lord, and the Lord has sent us to destroy it. So Lot went out and said to his sons-in-law, who were to marry his daughters, up, get out of this place. The Lord is about to destroy the city. But he seemed to his sons-in-law to just be jesting. As morning dawned, the angels urged Lot, saying, up, take your wife and your two daughters who are here, lest you be swept away in the punishment 
of the city. The text makes it really clear. Lot is ignorant. He has no idea what's happening. But in this next scene, he is made aware of what is happening. The angels warn him not once, but twice. They warn him that very night after he's just survived an attack that could have taken his guests where he was willing to give up his daughters. And they tell him, get your family out of town. Verse 12. Like something bad is going to happen. Get out of Dodge. And Lot still spends the night. When I, when I told you earlier that like, he seems so unaware, both of the danger that he is in and the salvation that is available, this is the first example we see where like, this guy does not get it. He has an opportunity to escape, absolutely misses it. Uh, when he goes to his, his sons-in-law, they miss it too. So before we're too harsh on Lot, the sons-in-law is like, they think he's kidding. Like, it, it, doesn't, it doesn't make sense. Uh, there's a great scene. I'm not recommending the movie. Uh, there's a great scene in Inglorious Bastards. It's a Quentin Tarantino movie, right? So, yeah, that's the name of the movie. I'm not, I'm not you know, besmirching people. Uh, there's this scene at the end of the movie where if, if you watched it, uh, there's a bad guy, a Nazi who defects and hands over Hitler. That's the premise of the movie. It's fiction. It, like, it's just a bang, bang, shoot him up. And when the guy who defects makes a deal both for his own safety and the, his driver, like the, just a chauffeur, who was a Nazi soldier. And the, the main character, the protagonist of the film, is like, oh, okay, for sure, you made a deal? Wonderful. And then he pulls a gun and shoots the driver. And the main guy's like, like angry. He's like, I made a deal for that man's life. You will hang for this. And, and the main character, his name is Aldo. Aldo's like, nah, nah, like, I'll get chewed out. I've been, I've been chewed out before. And I, when I was watching that, that scene, I, I thought it was so interesting because that is how we react to, like, to repercussions of our actions. We think that the worst thing that could ever happen is we'll get chewed out. I've been chewed out before. It ain't that bad. Lot has that kind of cavalier attitude in, in this scene. His son-in-laws have that kind of attitude. They're like, who is the Lord? Bro, you, like, you're kidding. They're like, we're not worried. This city's been here for a long time. You're not even from here, so how much can you really know? I've been chewed out before. Yeah, the city's kind of bad. We do bad things, but it, whatever. This scene ends with a second warning where they tell them the very next morning. So it's crazy that he even spends the night. But then the next morning, they're like, take your family and leave, right? We told you, your son-in-laws don't care. Apparently, they don't want to live. Get out of the city. So then we shift scenes again. Next scene, the escape, Genesis 19, 16 to 22. But he lingered. Like, this line should be like underlined in all your Bibles. When, when we talk like how much do we understand our own brokenness, the answer is not at all. Not at all. Lot is there and is chilling. It's not a big deal. There are angels who just struck someone with blindness. They're obviously not just men. And he's like, I don't think anything bad's going to happen. They've warned me twice, but I'm still hanging out. He lingers. The men seized him and his wife and his two daughters by the hand. So they're dragging him out. Lord, the Lord being merciful to him. And they brought him out and set him outside the city. And as they brought him out, one said, escape for your life. So now the third time, get out of town. Do not look back or stop anywhere in the valley. Escape to the hills lest you be swept away. And Lot said to them, Oh, no, my lords, behold, your servant has found favor in your sight, and you have shown me great kindness in saving my life. But I cannot escape to the hills, 
lest the disaster overtake me and I die. Uh, behold, this city is near enough to flee, and it's a little one. Let me escape there. Is it not a little one? My life will be saved. And he, so the angel, said to him, Behold, I grant you this favor also, that I will not overthrow the city of which you have spoken. Escape there quickly, for I can do nothing until you arrive there. Therefore, the name of that city was called Zor, Zoar, which also means small. So it's bad enough that Lot lingers, right? He doesn't seem to understand how great the danger is. He thinks nothing bad is going to happen. They physically remove him. They are dragging him out of town. The image we get there is like he didn't pack any bags. Like they were like, whatever you're wearing, that's what you have. We will drag you out of the city or you will die. And the story is, is interesting because as Lot is escaping, his thank you is, could you guys do a little better? It's, it's kind of odd, right? They're like, oh, you've shown me this great kindness in saving my life, but like I don't want to live in the hills. Can I live in the city? Right? The, the, it is so interesting uh, that his reaction to that is so thankless. They're saving his life. He's still asking for more. As you read through this story, hopefully you have the same dislike of Lot that I did as I was preparing this message. At every turn, he does absolutely stupid things. Uh, I don't find him to be tremendously hospitable because he just served unleavened bread. Uh, he is willing to give away his daughters, so I don't find him to be courageous in any meaningful way. Uh, he is warned of danger and does nothing, so he's incredibly passive. And then even when he is rescued by being forcibly dragged out of town, his reaction is, could you drag me that direction because I don't like where you're taking me. This dude is an absolute bum. He is, he is, we just gotta be real. He's an absolute bum, and he is still saved, right? I, so I, I wanna draw a comparison. It, it's not nowhere near as bad. Uh, imagine with me that you have a friend that is too attached to their phone. Uh, if you can't think of a friend, then that's because you're the friend. Uh, you're the person <laughs> that's too attached to your phone. As a loving friend, you tell them, listen, I love you enough to set screen time on your phone. Give me your phone, and you set the password, and you set the screen time, and you limit all their apps. Uh, and, and you set it, and they say thank you, but then like literally the next day, they're like, uh, can you send me that passcode? I'm trying to post this like long IG thing, and like I, I'm over on time, so I, I, I need it. Like, I'll, we'll reset it the next time I see you. And you're like, okay, sure, no problem. Like, I'm not a police officer. Yes, you can do whatever you want. It's your phone. You give them the password, and then every time after then that you ask them, you're like, hey, can we reset the password? Like, I'm just trying to help you out. They're like, oh, yeah, like, today's not a good day because I actually, I, like, you know, NHL playoffs, so I got to watch these videos on YouTube. So, like, I, I, I don't need screen limits today. Like, we'll do it the next time. And they just keep making excuse after excuse after excuse, right? They keep hitting the ignore the limit for today, right, because they have the password and they can do that. Uh, I guess your friend or you wants, is happy to be addicted to your phone. Uh, the, I, the, this story is... I think, illustrative of the idea that people want help. Like, everyone wants help. They're, we face danger, we face problems, and we're like, I wish things were better. But people are very willing to ignore the help that is offered, to manipulate the help that is offered. Lot is that to the nth degree. Screen time is whatever, right? We could all be better, for sure, on our phones, but it, it, it's not a matter of life or death. The destruction of a city because of their moral brokenness, that is a matter of life or death. And Lot's reaction in that is like, thank you for saving me, but like, can you do it my way? It is a remarkable story. He is the most ungrateful and stubborn character 
in the first 19 chapters of the Bible. And we have to ask, like, why was he rescued? Like, did he deserve it? Did he deserve to be saved? And I think this is one of those moments where Scripture is tremendously convicting of us. Uh, The reality is he did not deserve to be saved, but neither do we. Like, no one deserves to be saved. We're told explicitly in verse 16 that God showed him mercy. That's why God did it. Not because Lot was awesome, but because God is awesome. We learned that the very first sermon in this series, that God is a God of mercy. God is a God. God is a just God, but God is also merciful. Even the worst person in this story is able to be rescued from death. This passage reminds us, at this point, we're reminded that God offers salvation to all kinds of people, even the dumbest, even the wickedest, even people like Lot. I I don't know your story, but I'm very confident that none of you are as bad as Lot. And God still offered him deliverance. So the, the question for you, of course, then, is, is God making me the same offer? And the, the witness of Scripture is absolutely. Right? John 3.16 is one of the most well-known Bible verses of all time. Right? That for God so loved the world. God makes a universal offer to the entire world that whoever believes in him would not perish but have everlasting life. The question for you is will you accept it? Or will you be like Lot and drag your feet unaware of the danger that you're in? I hope that you accept the offer. God is a just judge. God is a just judge. But we learn one more thing about his justice in this passage. God is also the final judge. Genesis 19, verses 23 to 29. The sun had risen on the earth when Lot came to Zoar. Then the Lord rained fire on, or the Lord rained on Sodom and Gomorrah, sulfur and fire from the Lord out of heaven. He overthrew those cities and all the valley and all the inhabitants of the cities and what grew on the ground. But Lot's wife behind him looked back, and she became a pillar of salt. And Abraham went early in the morning to the place where he had stood before the Lord, and he looked down toward Sodom and Gomorrah and toward all the land of the valley, and he looked, and behold, the smoke of the land went up like the smoke of a furnace. So it was that when God destroyed the cities of the valley, God remembered Abraham and sent Lot out of the midst of the overthrow when he overthrew the cities in which Lot had lived. This passage ends, verse 29, by reminding us that Abraham remembered God. We're explicitly told a follow-up statement on what we learned in verse 16. God showed mercy. Why did God show mercy to this guy, to this bum that is Lot? God showed mercy because he remembered Abraham. Genesis 12, 1 to 3 says these things. The Lord, so God said to Abraham, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you, and I will make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Lot experiences the blessing of Abraham in that his connection to him is the reason God shows him mercy. This text is a reminder that God is so faithful to his promise that he will bless people two or three generations removed from that promise. This scene in 
its clarity on judgment is also tremendously clear on the faithfulness of God. Uh, this text, though, mostly focuses on the justice of God. Where we see it in a cosmic scale in that an entire city is wiped out. And if you know the story, it's not just the city, right? The language is the entire valley. Multiple cities, farmland in between, animals in between are all wiped out by fire from heaven. Right? We're told that this wasn't a natural disaster, actually. It was, it was the work of God. It is fire from the Lord out of heaven. The text makes it clear in verse 24. It's cosmic judgment. It's over everything. Uh, but this text also includes personal judgment. See, Lot did escape the fire, did escape the cosmic judgment on Sodom and Gomorrah and the whole valley. But he did not escape judgment completely. Uh, Lot's story, like we cut it off in verse 29, but Lot's story ends pretty badly as well. Uh, Lot ends up, his, his bloodline continues through incest. Lot, his story ends by producing the people that would become the opponents of Abraham and his descendants. Lot turns into the bad guy in the biblical story. So Lot escaped judgment cosmically, but did not escape judgment on, on a personal level. The judgment in this passage also, it, it is described as, as being total. It's not just the city, right? It's, it's the valley. It's, it's everything in between. And the language of it is quite interesting, right? Verse, verse 28, the smoke of the land went up like the smoke of a furnace. If, if you've read the Bible before, you would know that that line shows up elsewhere. It is a foreshadow to final judgment at the end of time. This is what Revelation 19 says. Revelation 19 is a is foreshadow into the future. This I heard, or after this I heard what seemed to be the loud voice of a great multitude in heaven crying out, Hallelujah, salvation and glory and power belong to our God, for his judgments are true and just. He has judged the great prostitute who corrupted the earth with her immorality and has avenged on her the blood of his servants. Once more they cried out, Hallelujah, the smoke from her goes up forever and ever. It's the same image. Revelation 19 is the people of God rejoicing that Babylon or Rome, the city that killed so many of them, was brought to an end. Not specifically Rome, but what Rome symbolizes. It, it's cities, it's people that are in opposition to God. It is entire people groups that live exactly like Sodom. People do what they want. And the people of God are saying, we're thankful that the Lord has provided justice. We're thankful that people can't get away with doing wicked things. See, it is true that people can't get away from judgment. That judgment is coming. It happened on Sodom and Gomorrah, and that story is meant to foreshadow the end of time. But that's not actually a fully true statement. There is actually one way to escape the judgment. In God's providence, you can escape the judgment if you are willing to allow another to take your place. And this is the story of Jesus. Jesus died on a cross. And the reason that we put those crosses on our necklaces and on our buildings is not because they look that cool. They, they don't. It's because we're remembering Jesus being willing to take your place. Jesus dying the death that you deserved, all of us are lawbreakers. We might not be called Sodomites, but we are no better than Sodom. We are no better than Babylon. We are no better than Rome. We are no better than anyone else. Every single person does what they want. And every single person will be held accountable by God unless they're willing to let someone take their place. 
And Jesus does that. Jesus dies on a cross and pays the penalty of sin that every single person deserves. The judgment that every single person deserves. But he doesn't stay dead. He resurrects. He raises to new life. And in raising to new life, he offers that life, eternal life, to anyone who follows him. This message, this idea is the foundation of Christianity. I, we don't talk about justice or judgment that much uh, because it's a hard word. This wasn't the sermon I was most excited to preach. I was most excited to preach about mercy because it feels good to hear that. But mercy is only mercy if there is also justice. And the story of Scripture is that God does not turn a blind eye to the wickedness of man. He steps in. But in his mercy, he offers a way out of the judgment that you deserve. If God is the final judge, I think there's two quick implications and, and then we will end. The first is we need to be patient with those who don't believe. I think people hear sermons like this and they're like, dude, this is why I am not a Christian. You guys talk so much and you talk about what's right and wrong and you don't care about people's stories you're judgy and arrogant, and the list goes on and on and on. Right? We've all been called those names. But if we know that God is the judge, God is the final judge, and every single person will give an account to him, every single person has to answer for the life that they've lived, for if they've obeyed him or not, then all of those family, all of those friends that don't believe, I think our posture towards them should be patience. I, I don't think that's super easy. I think when you get flamed for being a Christian, when you get flamed for believing things that culture doesn't love, I think the natural disposition we have is to retaliate, to say something, we wanna clap back, we wanna say something, like I'm not stupid, you're stupid. But if we know that God ultimately is coming back, God ultimately will hold people to account, then the, the biggest thing that we ought to do with those who don't believe is we ought to be praying for them and we ought to be hoping that God gives us an opportunity to tell them about the universal offer. The, the hope of Christianity is that anyone can accept it, that anyone can follow Jesus. Jesus takes the place of anyone who believes. So it doesn't matter how far away someone is, they still have an opportunity. So the first thing we have to do, we have to be patient with those who don't believe. And we all know them. We all know people who are not yet Christians. Secondly, I think we have to be patient with injustice. I think the story of Sodom and Gomorrah is, is great because it reminds us that people do all kinds of bad things. And historically, we focus on some things as more bad than others. But when we understand that God sees sin as sin, I think we, we want God to step in a little bit faster on some things than others, right? Where, you know, we, we've all had it. We've all had the rage fantasy on whatever thing you most care about, where you're like, I wish God would step in today unless you're on the other side. Then you're like, please, God, take your time. We, we all want God to step in when someone is wicked. We want God to hold people accountable. But we need to be patient in those moments. I think we have to resist the urge to hope for the worst in other people because this story reminds us that the worst is, is the end of life. The worst is fiery judgment. We shouldn't want that on anybody. It doesn't matter who they are, it doesn't matter how bad they are. We should be hoping that they would turn, that they would come back, that they would believe. We learn in this passage that God is the final judge. People will not get away with their wicked deeds. 
returning to the story of Robin Nesetta, I, I read an update on this story this week. So this week, I, there was an article from a year ago and then an article from now. Uh, she is going to court on August 1st. Like, so she will face trial. She's facing charges for falsifying a record and for trying to influence a public servant, right? For trying to manipulate someone. Uh, but she still needs to be proven guilty. Uh, she will go to court, but she might not lose. She might get away with it. But what we're reminded in this passage is actually no one gets away with it. God will not overlook wickedness forever because God is a God of justice. Let me pray for us, and then I'll invite the music team back up. Father God, thank you for this day. Thank you for this word, Lord. We recognize that it's not that encouraging in one sense. It's really heavy. But in another sense, it is the most encouraging thing, Lord, that that we know that everything bad in our world will one day be no more that you are a God of justice that will hold people to account for every bad thing they've said, every bad thing they've done. So, Father, I pray for every person in this room, uh, if they have not yet believed in Jesus so that he would take their place and pay the penalty that they deserve, I pray that today would be the day of salvation. And for all the people that we know, all our loved ones, our family, our friends, our coworkers, the people on our sports teams that do not know you, Father, I pray that you would soften their hearts We want people everywhere to know you, from Abbotsford, British Columbia, to St. John's, Newfoundland. We want everyone to know you and love you and obey you. So, Father, help us be a good model of that, be a good example. We pray this in the powerful name of Jesus. Amen.